0: Right, okay, before I begin, let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that your word finds people's hearts and instructs, commands and heals through your word this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to talk to you about the seventh commandment, I'm counting down, we've done 10, 9, eight, and now seven. And I will admit that I'm nervous about this one. (laughs) Because so far we've counted down from ten with a commandment that seemed to have fairly minimal impact and graduated to the more serious life issue of stealing. And uh, it's interesting that if you look at the commandments in Exodus, we can see that numbers eight, nine, and ten merely seem to highlight sections of number seven. So in Exodus 20.14, which is the one we're looking at today, it says, you must not commit adultery. Then it says, you must not steal. And after all, in adultery, there is stealing. Trust and intimacy are stolen from a relationship. It says, you must not testify falsely against your neighbour or lie. Often adultery is kept hidden for years by carefully constructed lies. Second apartments, um, mobile phones that don't have any recorded owners, all of that sort of thing, to keep them infidelity going for a long time. And it says, you must not covet your neighbour's what? I think that might have been covered in Commandment 10, really. His ox, female servants, male or female, or anything else that belongs to your neighbours. And let me tell you that if there hadn't been some coveting going on, Adultery would never have gotten off the ground. So it looks as though here we've, we've hit the meat of the commandment, as it were, that this is something serious. And adultery does have some very serious consequences. And I would be surprised if there was anyone in this room whose life has not been impacted in some way by the betrayal of adulterous behaviour. So really, I mean my question this morning, let's just lighten it a little bit, is what is the problem? This is, this is simple, five words and I'll expand on them. It's not rocket science. Get married and don't have sex with anyone but your wife. So what's the problem? It's simple, simple. Except it's never that simple, is it? What is the bottom line? Sex. I am here to talk to you, ladies and gentlemen, about sex. I remember a story of a <laughs> <laughs> my, my children are squirming already. <laughs> about an expert who was brought into a, uh, a uh, women's meeting to talk about sex, and he was a world-renowned expert, and he got up and he said, "Ladies." It gives me great pleasure. And he sat down. <laughs> sex has always been inescapable. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But today our society is almost submerged by sex. The media flood us with talks about sex, innuendo about sex, images of sex, advice about sex, questionnaires about sex, assertions about sex and problems with sex. Advertisers use sex To sell cars, fair enough. Ice cream, weird. Toothpaste, really strange. Deodorant, understandable. (laughs) Holidays, music and even pet food. (laughs) Who here buys the sexiest pet food they can find? (laughs) Some of you will remember the 1960s. Those of you who were there won't. <laughs> if you were truly involved. Because during the 1960s, we had something called the sexual revolution. And the sexual revolution was supposed to be the cultural change in our society, which freed us from all the problems that moral restriction had caused in the centuries and millennia before then and in some ways it did it brought a, an awareness of sexual behavior that we hadn't had before it brought things from you know Vic, the victorian era i mean this is nearer don't forget it came out of when queen victoria was queen which is why it was the Victorian, never mind. Um, But anyway, they did things like they had grand pianos, which they used to put tablecloths on so that you couldn't see the legs because they were considered a bit provocative. (laughs) I mean, come on. It's a piano. (laughs) Um, But um, the sexual revolution led to, supposedly, better sex education. And yet the developed world has an increasingly higher rate of teenage pregnancy and a depressing rate of abortion. So the education, I'm not sure, has worked. On one hand, we're told that sex is for recreation and pleasure, and yet we're also told it gives our life's meaning and purpose. You sort of think, well, can it do both of those things? The new openness about sex was supposed to be especially good for women because opened up their sexuality. It made them able to express how they were feeling and it made the world safer for them. Is the world a safer place for w- women today? I don't think so. It was meant to get rid of those back alley shops that sold that stuff called men's magazines. or Adult magazines. It's usually very childish. So I've heard. <laughs> last time I looked at one of those was when I threw out my collection 30 years ago, (laughs) before I was a Christian. And so porn shops were going to go out of business because people were so aware and and excited by their sexual freedom that there was going to be no need for pornography. And of course that's true today. Pornography is only a small worldwide business that nets around $100 billion a year. It is the biggest internet business on the planet. So much for safety of women. We were told prostitution was going to be a thing of the past because men would no no longer need to do that sort of thing because everybody was open about their sexuality and everything was going to be hunky-dory. By the way, if you're under 16 or whatever and some of this doesn't make sense, where have you been? (laughs) No, don't Google it. (laughs) That can get you into a lot of trouble. But prostitution today is bigger than it ever has been. We know more about the mechanics of the orgasm than ever before. And yet we seem to know less than our parents about how to make a relationship last more than a couple of years. Is it possible that the sexual revolution that was supposed to free us has instead led us down the road to sexual slavery? I think it might have. So... The problem is not that we think too much about sex. All the men gave a sigh of relief. (laughs) Because we all know there is no such thing as thinking too much about sex. The problem is that we think about it very poorly. You think, how can you do that? Because we believe things about sex that are actually untrue. And that's what gets us into trouble. Our society has told us that sexual freedom is the key to personal liberation. So marriage as an institution, of course, is right out because that involves slavery. Two people get shackled to one another. Has anybody heard that term? You know, you go home to the ball and chain. You know, all this imagery about prison. And so people have been rejecting marriage... Because they see it as a, an institution which restricts what we can actually do with our lives. It fits in with the if it doesn't work, you can just walk model of disposable society that we have today. So, with all of this weird idea about sex, it's interesting that the seventh commandment addresses that very, very clearly. But there's a backstory. And so, this morning, I'm going to talk to you about the backstory. story. I don't think I'm going to mention adultery again. Well, that's not true. I'll bring it up just to remind us where we're going. But when it comes to the importance of why God talks about the fact that he doesn't say, he doesn't give any more detail. He does not say, thou shalt not use the lotus position. He should have because it's bloody difficult. <laughs> I was... Gu- I, I was g- <laughs> <laughs> Google it. <laughs> um, I was going to use other position titles but that would imply that I knew what they were and I could get into trouble there too. So, to understand what adultery is, And why it is a sin, we need to understand what marriage is. To understand marriage, we need to understand sex. But to understand sex, we need to understand our bodies. So, if somebody will hold the microphone, I'm just going to strip off. (laughs) It's time for coffee, did someone say, yes. (laughs) So I want to cover quickly three fundamental points to help us understand this adultery fiasco. I want to talk firstly about the body and its beauty in God's eyes. I want to talk about the nature of sex and the meaning of marriage. Now, I want to to cover this as quickly as possible, but I don't want to skim over anything because this sex is something which strikes at the very heart of Christian belief. It puts us at odds with the majority of world opinion and culture. And while we shouldn't be surprised about that, how we handle that is an extremely important issue. We are used to living in a society which is based on Christian values. And as such, I think the the Christian church has enjoyed a 500-year stint of having its ideas on sexuality accepted by the general population, which has made the church, A, lazy, and B, arrogant. The arrogance comes from the fact that the church, to a large degree, has got it wrong. But I won't go into that. that. Well, I will. Sorry, I've changed my mind. I'm a w- I'm not, no, let's <laughs> not. I'm allowed to change my mind just as much as any other woman. <laughs> Did I get out of that one all right? <laughs> okay, let, let, let's, let's start with the body. Can I have a volunteer? No. <laughs> the interesting thing is about spirituality in general and Christianity specifically is that a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, believe that God is only interested in spiritual things. Sacred thoughts and words and actions that are mysterious, untouchable, angelic, and a million miles away from grubby sex. Can you imagine? God interested in you in bed, making love to your wife. For most of us, that's a sort of eerie thought. <laughs> but it's actually a clever lie to say that God is only interested in spiritual things because that gives us license to do whatever we like physically. But this was, came in fairly on, in, in fact, only in the last 500 years of Christianity, so it's been going for 2,000 years. 75% of the time that Christianity has been a force of faith on this earth, there was a, a knowledge, if you like, of the fact that bodies, and particularly bodies having sex, was evil. And the funny thing is that it wasn't Jesus who said it. It was the Greeks. And the Greeks weren't even Christians at the time. But because Greek culture was so powerful, these ideas from Greek culture crept into Christianity and the idea that our bodies were sinful and that having sex with our bodies was the ultimate in sinful stuff actually doesn't come from the Bible, it doesn't come from Jesus, it comes from those Greeks (laughs) because they had a, a philosophy about the separation of spirituality and materialism that meant that spirituality was good, material and physical stuff was bad. And we took that on board up until the Reformation, when the Bible was rediscovered in a sense that people other than priests and monks and nuns read it, to discover that there was nothing in there that said our bodies were evil and that sex was bad. Some of you are taking notes. So, for the last 500 years, the church has struggled to combat this idea that is still prevalent today in our society, Christian or not, that our bodies are evil and they do evil things, even when you're married. You know, there were, there were conventions that when you got married in, in some Christian religious circles that the only acceptable way of having sex was to have a sheet between you with a, with a hole in it. To enable sexual congress so that you couldn't see your partner, touch them. There was no skin on skin. Boring. (laughs) (laughs) Horrible is a better word, yes. Um, But it still persists. Uh, Religious music. I mean, religious music can hardly be described as sexy a lot of the time. Half of the time it doesn't have a beat. And it's sung by people who have ridiculously high voices. It's a common religious sound. <laughs> <laughs> I translate it to ah, <laughs> but it's got a lot of. It has that wafty spiritual side, that of, you know. It reminds me a bit of that that movie with that, um, the thir- Close Encounters of the yeah. Third Kind. That that particular um, thing is, is sort of very spiritual in an alien sort of way. Um, <laughs> How many stained glass windows have you ever seen in a church that depict people having sex? Well, I can tell you ahead of time, no matter how hard you look, none is the answer. And and I don't know about you, but have you noticed that they're all wearing halos? Can you imagine having sex with the two of you wearing halos? It would be awkward. And so the church has perpetuated this image of purity based on the Attainment of spiritual purity to the detraction of physical, attract, of physical actions in our lives. But the Bible doesn't say any of that. The Bible is very blunt about bodies. Jesus talks about bodies. He talks about heaven and the future. He, the examples he uses to talk about heaven are, part, are examples of feasting and partying. Now I don't know whether you've ever been to a feast or a party but the, to me that I haven't been to any terribly spiritual ones apart from Jim Beam and other spirits of that sort. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of bodies and they're often dancing, cavorting, um, eating. There's a lot of physical stuff that goes on at parties. Is this not right? At feasts there's a lot of phys- It's eating. You stuff your body... You're not stuffing your mind or your spirit. You don't sit there eating, going <laughs> with a halo on. I am holy eating. <laughs> Might be eating a whole pig, or being holy a pig. But and, and the Bible, Jesus talks about this whole idea. To him, going to dinner parties was his ministry. He went and had dinner with people. He didn't go to. Um, who was the guy up the tree? Zechariah, he didn't say, Zechariah, come down from there and let's go to church. Let's sing holy songs, get on our knees, beat our brows, whip ourselves and get into a spiritual frenzy so that we can be closer to God. He said, I am coming to your place for dinner with all your friends. And everybody went, Zechariah's friends are all sinners. Jesus is going to a a sinner's house for dinner how can we tolerate this? This is, this is not done. And yet that's what we're called to do. We're called to be physical with people, within reason, and go to sinners' places for dinner. We can even take a bottle of wine. Wouldn't that be sinning? I don't think so. Jesus made plenty of it. He was the original winemaker. I think he cheated. We can't cordon gone off from our daily lives. He doesn't disappear when things get rude. (laughs) We shouldn't restrict him to some mysterious part of our inner life called spirituality. He wants to be involved in every area of our lives, both spiritual and physical. How do I know this? Spoiler alert, God invented sin created man and woman and shoved them, to, you two, off you go. <laughs> he said, he, he, I mean the Bible uses fairly tame, he said go and procreate. What he meant was get, yeah, go away and do it. He made, I mean you think about it, God created man and woman, he created sex organs. <laughs> he created hormones. <laughs> I know, a terrible joke about that. Um, but with Nathan, I'm going to u- use wisdom. Um, <laughs> far from being embarrassed about the fact that he created us with naughty bits, he even decided where they should go on our bodies and how they should work. It's interesting that... Humans are unique in the fact that relationship actually is at the heart of sex, not reproduction. Every other species on the planet has sex to reproduce. It's interesting that we are one of the only species, if not the only one, who can actually, although I've heard in the popular literature it's not often done, have sex face to face known as the missionary position, which was actually not coined by missionaries. (laughs) It was coined by natives who snuck up and watched the missionaries and thought they were hilarious because of... Yeah, anyway. Less less history lesson. Quick, got to move on. Nature of sex. Okay, we are, by God's design, sexual. Our sexuality although twisted by a rebellion against God, is good and one of his gifts. Jesus' first miracle was a marriage feast. Wedding imagery is used repeatedly in the Bible about heaven and the second coming. And in fact, there is a whole book in the Old Testament dedicated to sex. Now, a lot of people say, Oh, well, no, this is just imagery about um, uh, symbolic love crap. It's about sex and it's naughty about sex, it's real about sex, and it's a song of songs, you should read it. At the moment, there's a very strong tendency in our Western society to declare sexuality off-limits for God. The argument goes that he's only interested in our attitude towards him, which is our spirituality, and frankly, he doesn't care what we get up to in the bedroom. Such a view flies in the face of the teachings of the Bible, and oddly enough, it actually undermines... The importance of sex. Sex in marriage is good and God-given. But it's interesting, we shouldn't get too hung up on it because God also celebrates singleness. It's also being good. So I think sometimes we as Christians, and I've seen it especially in, in young people, sort of move towards a stage of life where you have to find the perfect partner because at some point it's intolerable that you should be a human being and not have had sex. Um, that isn't part of God's design necessarily at all. You can have relationships, healthy, whole, good, long-living relationships without sex. I speak to most married men. <laughs> Outside of this building I'm talking about. I told you this was a dangerous message. <laughs> Sex is powerful and if misused, can be destructive. It's often compared to a, a fire. Everybody knows that fire is very useful, it keeps you warm, really good, unless it burns your house down, in which case it's destructive. Sex is a bit like that and it has been known to burn houses down. The third thing I want to talk about is the meaning of marriage. And this is where it gets really, really naughty Not naughty, naughty. Because, especially at the moment, the whole meaning and idea of marriage is in flux. Our society is in turmoil about the whole meaning of the word marriage. Who it should apply to. What benefits should it give people. What is the legality of it? Who should engage in it? And it is extremely hard to navigate. Let me put on another hat. I did a science degree and worked 20 years as a molecular biologist. I don't really care, wearing this hat, what your faith is, but I know enough about biology to know that a norm that is based on a reproductive strategy that doesn't involve couples that can actually reproduce is doomed to failure. What I'm saying is that the only way society can move forward is by calling a marriage a relationship between a male and a female. Now, that is from a purely scientific point of view. I'm not talking about whether that's right socially, religiously, politically or any other way. But biologically speaking, our species will die out if we don't make normal population increase via male and female interaction. Simple as that. Now, I'm not talking about people's feelings, people's political attitudes, people's relationships. Th- that's just biology. The Rich, uh, Richard Dawkins, I think... It, was many years ago, wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. And in it, it basically states that your genetics do not give a stuff about what you feel, what you believe or what you think. When you have sex and procreate, the genetic offspring of that has no basis, does not change based on how you feel about it, what you want about it or anything else. It is a mechanical system that works at the genetic level and outputs things according to the laws of nature and there's nothing you can do about it and your genetics will drive you us forward as a population based on its laws and its laws only and so what we put on top of that in terms of our culture, our faith our, our politics, anything else is actually secondary I'm taking that hat off now thus ends the biology lesson The Bible is actually very simple about what the meaning of marriage is. It requires three things it requires leaving, uniting, and becoming. A man and a woman leave their families and marry. That is the first essential step in a marriage, in a biblical sense. Marriage marks the irrevocable start of a new legal and social unit in the community. They must unite. There is a merging of a couple in every area of life. It shows a commitment between a man and a woman that brings together every aspect of what they are, personal, emotional and social. There is to be no area where married people are to hold back from surrendering to each other. That doesn't mean that the woman gets to surrender to the man unless the man is prepared to also surrender to the woman. There is no inequality in that statement. And that means the third thing is becoming one flesh. Involves sex. And it's a deep level. In the sexual act, there's more than something happening more than just physical contact. There is a total togetherness and a union to the extent that the two people concerned are, in a real sense, no longer individuals. Anything less than this falls short of the biblical definition of marriage. And the the Bible talks about marriage as being a covenant. The word covenant means agreement or promise and comes with the implication of a lifelong commitment between two parties with mutual obligations. Both parties freely enter a covenant and make promises to be faithful and true and that's what marriage is. The interesting thing is the Bible does not say that you have to be in love to get married or to have a successful marriage weird, eh? The idea that you have to be in love to be married and to have a successful marriage is actually fairly recent. Probably about the 1960s. Actually, no, it's been going a bit longer than that. But if you base marriage and the success of marriage purely on an emotional attraction, it won't last very long which is why these concepts are what is important in a Christian marriage or in a marriage before God because he, he knows that... And I've been married for 34 years. <laughs> Thought I'd better get that right. 34, 35, yeah, what's the difference? The The feelings that you have for each other over 34 years change. They fluctuate. Now, I would say that I'm still in love with my wife. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I'm pretty sure she's still in love with me. But it's slightly different to the teenage love that we went through when we were teenagers perhaps not quite as impulsive (laughs) and lots of other things but it doesn't we haven't relied on the fact of we wake up one day and I'm not happy with you today, let's get divorced it's the fact that we've actually made a commitment and that we've worked at that commitment that actually stimulates and leads to that continuation of the love that we have the love doesn't start things the lo- love is actually a byproduct of a commitment to a long-term relationship there's a huge amount of other stuff i could talk about with regards to marriage and i think it's something that we should always have on the table as part of a discussion um to do with today's turmoil about marriage, but let me just make one important point. I think the biggest problem we have is that when people talk about the church or Christians or spirituality, there's a a lumping together. It's people, I mean, people talk about, for instance, the gay lobby. I've never met a, a doorway that had any particular sexuality, so I'm not quite sure what that is. But it's a way of grouping people into a single entity so that you can point a finger at them and say, it's them, they did it. And and it's because our sexuality has become politicised, it's become polarised. There is no middle ground anywhere. There is no individualism. It's us and them. It's this attitude or that attitude. And I I want to warn everybody here that as a church, we come together as one body. But I believe that when we come together as one body, there are two main things that we are called to do. Worship and celebrate. When it comes to actually enacting our Christianity in terms of interaction with other people who are not part of our church, who are not part of our faith, I believe we are called to act as individuals. Christianity is passed from one individual to another, not one church to an individual. When we interact with people who may have opposing views to ours on sexuality, politics, whatever it is, we need to not think of ourselves as the church. We need to look and say, this is another human being that I'm talking to here. What would Jesus do? When we do that, it's it's easy because Jesus went and had dinner with prostitutes, adulterers, tax collectors, sinners of all sorts, immoral people who didn't believe in what he believed in. And when he had an opportunity, he stated what he believed in, but he never accused people of their beliefs. What he did was convict them with his. And I believe much as though We are going to be under a lot of pressure to act as a unit because it feels safer that way. I believe that we are called to meet individuals at their level and show them the love of Christ on an individual basis. Sure, at some point they're going to say, what do you believe about gay marriage? And you're going to have to take a stand and say, well, this is what I believe because this is what I believe God has said. So you're judging me? No. No. It's not a question of that. It's a question of that. that's your belief, but that doesn't stop you being a friend to somebody who has that opposite belief or possibly even that opposite sexual orientation. But it has to be on an individual level. And you have to resist the idea that... Because as soon as you say something like that, people say, well, you're homophobic. Because it's great, because you can attach a label to somebody and you've got them in a box. No. It's a bit like saying... I'm not going to have any friends who have committed adultery. In fact, why, why, why? Stop there. I'm not going to have any friends who sin. <laughs> because after all, it's just one sin. It's not a worse sin. People look at things like that and they say, "Well, that's really bad." No, no, no. It's, it's not. Jesus didn't categorize sins. You sin or you don't. If you do sin, which you do, let's be fair. Let's be fair here. We, we sin. We repent. And that's it. So we are called to act out our Christianity as individuals. As a group, we are called to lift up God, worship, celebrate, come together, encourage one another. But we're not called to be a mob, to go out there and raise placards, and go on protest marches, to talk about what we believe in. I mean, when I, when I was young, there was a show called O Calcutta that came to Adelaide. And it was scandalous because there were naked breasts in it. Apparently a lot. And our bank manager, who was a devout Christian, it was this was at the time, spoke out against this show, O Calcutta, and put a newspaper article in in the local paper, or the advertiser it might have been, and went on a rampage against this sinful program that was playing at the festival theatre or... I don't know if that was built then. Um, but of course what, what happened was that because of the article a lot more people went to see O Calcutta. <laughs> and the bank building in Wollonga one day ended up with a big spray painted sign across the front of it that said, "Wowzer." <laughs> now he was right. It was probably not a good show although today you see more, more on television than that show probably exposed to people. But what he did was he institutionalised his protest and alienated people. It's fine to think, well, I, I'm not going to that because I don't believe that's good. It's fine if you're asked to say, well, what do you think of OK, Calcutta? Well, I don't approve. But if you want to go, fine. But I believe that that's a step I'm not going to take. It's great. We enact our Christian... Christian values and faith as individuals you don't say well my church is coming along to protest and picket it so that all of you people who are going on feel ashamed because you're going to go and see boobies <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself what intrigues me is at the moment that every male in the room is thinking of a pair and, <laughs> and, they're, and they're all different <laughs> I'd love to get a gallery up on the screen but <laughs> let's not go there but this morning can I, can I get uh, David to move the the pulpit out of the way i ha- i haven 't been particularly spiritual this morning because i didn 't want to be because I think it 's important that we understand the physicality of our being is important to God. sometimes it sounds rude, sometimes it sounds confronting sometimes it 's just bloody difficult because of all these things that we face in our society that make a simple belief in in what we'd we'd like to institutionalise really difficult I mean if it comes to personal idea about marriage it always intrigues me that people who have spent decades showing how different they are to the heterosexual community suddenly want to pretend they are exactly the same uh, if they want gay marriage, why don't call it garage? And just make it the same but different. It's a bit like, uh, and I'm not being flippant with that. If you think about it, it's a bit like, who knows that the rules of AFL change from year to year. They have different rules about tackling and, and, and you know, it can be quite frustrating. And so rules change and that's fine. It's all to do with improving the game and, and all the rest. But if you think about it, changing the actual definition of the structure of marriage is a bit like having somebody on the siren kick the football towards the goals and make a hell of a hash of it. But time freezes and four men in white coats get out, dig up the goalposts and move them around, plant them. Time starts again and the guy kicks a goal. It's like moving the goalposts in the middle of a match. Call it something different, but don't change the fundamentals of what marriage actually is. That was my little rant. Can can we stand? I just want to quickly pray for people this morning. And I'm not going to give you a lot of time to think about this, so I want you to act on impulse. I said earlier that I, I reckon most of us have either suffered the consequences of being involved in or had, had adultery affect our life in some way. And I think most of us get over it eventually. But it can leave very deep scars. And it can bind us up. And it can change our attitude to the world. And I believe that through prayer, through a relationship with God, we can change that. So can I ask everybody just to close their eyes and quickly, while no one's looking around, if you have had adultery affect your life and you're not at peace with that, you would like prayer, you would like something from God to break some chains, to, to change some attitudes, to bring peace into your life, just quickly raise your hand. I won't make you come out the front if you raise your hand I'll acknowledge you thanks I see that hand and we'll all pray together anybody else? thanks okay open, let's open our eyes I want, us to, I want us to pray this out loud together because I, I want us to affirm what we should know things are possible through the power of God. So, Lord, I believe that you are the ultimate healer. I claim right now your divine healing in my heart, in my spirit, in my mind, and in my body to overcome every trap of the devil in my life. I proclaim right now that I am an overcomer, nothing can and nothing will defeat me as long as I am in Jesus' arms. Amen.